you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be covering uh, verses 12 through 26 as we uh, begin the early stages of continuing our work through the book of Acts together. And so we'll be in Acts until we pause for Advent and then we'll pick it back up um, after we do a theology of the body and human sexuality to start the year. And the Acts will probably carry us through most of next year. So uh, it will be good for us to walk uh, through this chronicle of the early church from its birth through its infancy uh, through its adolescence. And so today we're going to be looking at the last part of Acts chapter 1. When I was growing up, and I wish my mom were here this morning because she would verify the story I'm about to tell you, uh, and you can ask her when you see her, but at one point at, at dinner one night, we, we called a family meeting, which was never good because family meeting meant something was wrong or someone was in trouble. Um, and so we're at dinner, and it's like, all right, we need to discuss a few things. My sister, I believe, was junior or senior in high school, so I was a freshman or a sophomore. I can't remember exactly. Uh, the details aren't important, uh, but the, what happened was, so my mom says, hey, we're all busy. We've all got a lot going on, but we need to all be committed to pitching in to helping around the house, to help keep the house cleaned up, to help clean... He, keep the house picked up, do what you can to help. She said, so what would we, what would you all like to do? Like, what would be the things that you would like to do to help around the house? Well, at that point in our family's life, my mom, for her job, was cleaning other people's houses. And so we kind of sat there for a few minutes, kind of looked at our plates, moved the food around a little bit, and finally, the impulse in me took over, and I was no longer able, I should have kept my mouth shut, but I was not able to keep my mouth shut, and so I looked up from my plate and I said, I don't know, Mom, maybe we should just pay you to clean our house the way that you clean other people's houses. Uh, and it ruined dinner that night. And I got in a lot of trouble. But the thing is, is I thought, well, Mom, you're already doing it for other people. So just do it for us and we'll just pay you, which is a terrible idea. Like it's not even remotely the thought that you should have as you're having that discussion. But I thought, well, if you're already doing it, just keep doing it, but do it here. And I think sometimes as we open Acts 1, 12 through 26, we've got to consider God's sovereignty this morning. If last week we looked at the ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit as kind of the beginnings of the birth of the church, then what undergirds, what gives the church its confidence to move forward is God's sovereignty. The certainty that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. But oftentimes, like me at the dinner table that night, we view God's sovereignty as our chance to step back and say, well, God, you're going to do it, so just go ahead and do it anyway. We use God's sovereignty as a means to insulate ourselves from the hard work of ministry. And if you're of a certain age in here, which most of you are, you know that, that we've created a little cottage industry around spiritualizing our inertia. We've made a little cottage industry around finding God's will for your life. And what we've done is we've taken the idea of God's sovereignty and our ability to choose, and we've married them together in a way 
that helps keep us comfortable in not doing the things that God has called us to do because we're trying to find God's will for our life. This one specific kind of thread the needle way that we should be living, the job that we should have, where we should live, who we should marry, how many kids, all these things. But what we're often doing is we're kicking the can down the road on being faithfully present where we are and doing the work that God has before us. And so this morning, as we consider Acts 1, 12 through 26, we want to consider how we should respond in light of God's sovereignty. This is what Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. DeYoung writes, God knows what we need to live. When he wants us to die, we will die. And as long as he wants us to live, we will live. He will provide us with food, drink, jobs, housing, with everything that we need to live and glorify him in this life until he wants us to glorify him by dying. Worrying and fretting and obsessing about the future, even if it is a pseudo-holy worry that attempts to discern the will of God, will not add one single hour to your life and it will certainly not add any happiness or holiness either. We must fight to believe that God has mercy for today's troubles, and that no matter what may come tomorrow, that God will have new mercies for tomorrow's troubles. God's way is not to show us what tomorrow looks like, or even to tell us what decisions we should make tomorrow. That's not his way, because that's not the way of faith. God's way is to tell us that he knows tomorrow, he cares for us, and therefore we should not worry. So as we continue in Acts this morning, I want us to make sure we don't have the wrong view of God's sovereignty, namely that his sovereignty removes from us all responsibility. The disciples are waiting in the upper room where they will be given the promised spirit, and as they wait, they show us how even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of more questions than answers, we can rely on God's sovereignty, and it can propel us forward to live with bold faith. Let's pray. God, we are grateful this morning. We're grateful that we have a testimony of your sovereignty in each of our lives. We have a testimony of your patient care for us, of your meeting our every need. And so, God, as we consider your sovereignty this morning in light of these verses, as we consider your work in the world and in our life, would sovereignty be something that both gives us great comfort, but also gives us great energy and courage for the mission before us, for the work that you have for us? Will we not consistently pawn off our responsibility by saying, well, God's sovereign, so it's going to happen anyway? Will we find joy in embracing the work you have for us? Will we find joy in embracing what it looks like to follow you in every area of life? And will we find freedom from the worry that we're somehow going to miss your will for our life? And will we live into your clearly stated will for us, which is to love you with all we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves, to give ourselves fully to the mission? Will we rest in that today? In Jesus' name, amen. Luke continues the story of the church in Acts 1 when he writes in 12 through 14, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. 
all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So after all that has transpired, the death and resurrection of Jesus and his just witnessed ascension, the disciples, both men and women, returned to Jerusalem where they were instructed to wait until the Spirit was poured out on them. They enter the upper room, and perhaps, as some speculate, but there's no certainty to it, perhaps this is the same upper room where they shared the Last Supper with Jesus and where Jesus gives them the promise and the assurance of the coming Spirit. There's a chance this is the same room, but whether it is or not, they've been faithful to follow the Lord's instruction from the mount called Olivet to this moment, and they wait, they are in the room waiting for the promise of the Lord to be fulfilled. Now, if you pause for a minute, one of the things I love about historical accounts we have in the, gospel, in the Gospels and Acts in all of Scripture is it gives us a chance to pause and to try to imagine for a moment, to try to get ourselves in a headspace where we could be in that moment with those people. Think for a moment about what it must have felt like to be in that room with the disciples and those who followed Jesus. You can almost feel the crackle of expectancy running through the room like a live power line. Everything has happened to bring them to this point, but they still must wait. Why is that? Have you ever paused to consider why they're sent back to Jerusalem and told to wait? Jesus is ascending. There's nothing that hinders God from moving in that moment that while Jesus is ascending the spirit could just descend right there land on the disciples fill the disciples and we could just get a mass exit like run off the hill whichever direction you run just keep running and share with everyone you come in contact with the good news of the gospel I think at least one of the reasons why we don't see that happen one of the reasons why the disciples and the followers of Jesus, which according to most estimates would have been around 120 people packed into this upper room, I think one of the reasons they were sent back to wait is so they could wrestle with the question of if they really wanted God's promise to be fulfilled in them outside of the excitement of Jesus' ascension. It would be easy to say in the moment that you see the Son of God lifted up on a cloud into heaven, yeah, I want the Spirit. I want whatever he's offering. I'll take it right now. But if you go back, and we don't know how long the wait was between entering the upper room and the Spirit arriving. But in those moments, you have to begin to wrestle with all the teachings of Jesus that you've heard, the life you've witnessed, the way he was treated, the death he died. And you have to begin to wrestle with, is this what I really want or not? Do I want to stay in this room until the Spirit comes? Or maybe I've had enough and I'm ready to bow out now. It is often so easy, especially in the life of a believer, to commit to something or some mission in the rush of the crowd, in the rush of the moment. It is easy sometimes to convince ourselves this is what we should be doing or this is where we should be headed. And then it's only later in moments of sober reflection that we have the risings of trepidation and of fear. And so I think one of the reasons that they are sent back to wait is to pray, and we're going to look at that in a moment, but I think it was also to ask themselves personally, do I really want to follow Jesus? Do I really want what is about to happen to happen to me? 
We see a, no such wavering here. As Kent Hughes notes in his commentary, they stayed together because of one thing. They believed that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them and they were going to receive promised power. They expected the infilling of the Holy Spirit. They had absolutely no doubt about it, no wavering and no discussion. When we decide that we do want to follow Jesus, when we decide that we want to give ourselves fully to the mission of following God, then there is, becomes a point where the wavering ends, where the hesitancy begins to fade, and we say, I want what God has for me, and that's what we see here. I have no doubt, I would imagine, because they're human, they're not superhuman, that there were moments of wrestling and really asking, does this, is this what I want my family to experience? Do I want to live with the threats? All the good that's promised, yes, but there's the other side I have to consider for me and for my family. There's a resolve that settles in the room that there will be waiting, patient waiting. And so they remain committed because they believe God is a God who will keep his promises. And so right alongside that expectant belief in the promises of God, we see the second part of their commitment in this. They are all praying towards that one end. They are all praying, we are told. With one accord, praying that God would move, that God would send the Spirit. When we are brought to a place of waiting, even when we are sure of the promises of God toward us, we will be wise to follow the disciples' lead and continue in prayer until the promise is realized. But we struggle to pray, don't we? We struggle to pray in the certainty of God's promises for us. I think if we were to offer a chance for everyone to take a hand-raising survey, and we're not going to do that, but I think if we did, and we were to survey each of our spiritual lives and our spiritual disciplines that we're trying to cultivate, I would imagine that near the top would be in the desire for an increase of our prayer life that would match something of the disciples' fervor in this moment. We struggle to pray in line with the promises of God. We don't know everything that they were praying for in those moments, but the undercurrent, the main prayer was, God, do what you said you're going to do. Send the Spirit on us. It's often tough for us to pray, and what stops us from these moments, or better yet, a life of prayer that waits expectantly for God to work in power, to do things in us, through us, and around us that can only be attributed to a loving Father at work in the world. We struggle with this because we have a low view of what prayer is accomplishing. We have a low view of what prayer is accomplishing because prayer rarely gives us an immediate answer to what we're asking. And we have been conditioned to expect immediacy to every question we have, every inquiry, inquiry we make. We struggle to wait in patience in life in general and especially as it relates to our life with God and Christ and the Spirit in us. Paul Miller gives a pinpoint diagnosis of our current issue with prayer in his book, A Praying Life, when he writes this. American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments and production. But prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we are wasting time. 
Every bone in our body screams, get to work. When we aren't working, we are used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, and cell phones make free time as busy as work. And when we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. Exhausted by the pace of life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. If we try to be quiet, we are assaulted by what C.S. Lewis called the kingdom of noise. Even our church services can have the same restless energy. There is little space to be still before God. We want our money's worth, so something should always be happening. We are uncomfortable with silence. One of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it is quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. As a result, exhortations to pray don't stick. When we consider the life of the disciples in these opening verses of the latter part of Acts chapter 1, we see two ways that they are described that should be prescriptive for how we are to live life. In community with one another, waiting patiently for the promises of God to be fulfilled, and praying fervently that those promises would be fulfilled. We can make life with Jesus and life with one another full of a whole lot of things. But the patient example of the disciples here is worth considering how you could begin to see that lived out in your own life. So I think it leads us to three kind of immediate application points just in these first verses. First application point is this. If you're going to pray in line with the promises of God, you've got to know the promises of God, which means you've got to be in the Word. The promises of God are not subjective things that we would like to see happen. The promises of God are the concrete, objective things that God has said He will do and that He will work in the life of His followers, in the lives of His sons and His daughters. So if we want to be those who are waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled, we have to know those promises by being in the Word. The second thing we have to do is we have to be in community gathered together with other believers because we know from Matthew 28 that there were those on the hill who had their doubts. We know as the rest of Acts is going to unfold, it is a stop and start, sometimes more keystone cops than anything else in how the church begins to live out its identity and its mission. But what you never see is someone just break out and go their own way and forego the community that God has provided to help ground them in both the promises of God and also encourage them to hold on to those promises. And the third thing we see just from these opening verses is the call to have prayer, not just be something we do before a meal or at the close of the day, but prayer to be a marked expression of ongoing faith in our life. Not constant distraction, not constant entertainment, but the undercurrent of our life should be an undercurrent of prayer where we are having a conversation with God about who he is, about who we are becoming, about what we would like to see God do in the world, praying in line with his promises. And so that's where we start. But notice Acts 1 doesn't end there. And oftentimes, look, this is where we end it. We say, all right, I'm going to know the scriptures I'm going to be in community, and I'm going to pray. 
The disciples have heard the words of Jesus. They're in the room together. They're praying. But there's still work to be done. Even in the midst of that. Now, it's not frantic work. It's not running here or there. They're very disciplined and they're very direct because they know the next thing that they have to do. In Acts 1, 24 through 26, we see this. Oh, sorry, I went down too far. Before the Spirit, forget I said that. Before the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, we see the disciples continue to act in faith. As we see the disciples in the upper room, they are preparing to replace Judas Iscariot. Luke recounts in verses 17 through 20 that Judas, in his sorrow over his betrayal of Christ, took his own life. So the disciples are left, who are left are moving to replace Judas. Why, though? Why replace the guy? You're good with 11. You don't need to refill his position, do you? But they do because, as the ESV Study Bible notes, the addition of this new 12th apostle would complete the new nucleus for the people of God parallel to the, 12 he- to the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. You replace Judas Iscariot with a new disciple so that you are apostle so that you have a mirror image. The 12 heads of the tribes of Israel from the Old Testament are now mirrored in the 12 apostles who begin inaugurating the new people of God in the age of salvation. And so they replace him so that what you see in the New Testament could be directly tied back to what we've seen in the Old Testament. And so this is important and it matters. And so we read beginning in verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Now before we move into the rest of the text, let's pause for a moment. The crackle of the excitement of God's promises being fulfilled is now dampened in the room all of a sudden. Because you're putting forward two men to replace Judas. We know how this plays out. But in that moment, they had no clue. Who else had been with them from the baptism of John, saw Jesus' life and miracles, saw Jesus' teaching, heard every word, and still at the end of the day betrayed him? It was Judas. So imagine for a moment the anxiety, the stress, and perhaps the fear that the disciples were facing. They are replacing a known traitor who ministered with them for three years. Someone who they had entrusted themselves to as a fellow follower of Jesus. And this comes on the heels of Christ ascending with his promise to send the Holy Spirit, but none of them are even sure what that will look like. And they had to, you would imagine, be gripped with a certain sense of apprehension that they may be about to select Judas 2.0 who would not just betray one of them, but the whole group, and ensure their death. This was no easy time for the disciples to lean into and trust the sovereignty of God, but they did. Rarely is it easy seasons of life that cause us to fully rely on the sovereignty of God. However, in ruthless trust, the apostles move forward in the verses that follow. 
think for a moment again of being in that room. You think you know Matthias. You think you know Justice, but you also thought you knew Judas. Imagine for a moment that you're in that position. You've got to pick somebody. You've got to go get the next guy to be the 12th apostle to take Judas's place. And Jesus, let's not forget, Peter and John didn't go get Judas off the sidelines. Jesus himself picked Judas. Jesus did it so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. But you've got to think, in that moment, you're not really putting all those pieces together. You're going, man, we know now that Jesus is who he says he was, and he got the wrong guy. He picked the wrong dude. How do we know we're going to get it right? But they trusted. They trusted that even though they couldn't have the certainty of knowing that this pick was going to be any different or any better than Judas, they made it because they trusted in God's sovereignty. Because just as much as they felt and knew the fear and the trepidation of picking one, they had, always, they had already seen and could look back over just the previous handful of years and see how God's sovereignty had carried them to this point, even in the midst of Judas's betrayal even using Judas's betrayal to accomplish his purposes. And so they move forward in trust. In Acts 1, 24-26 says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. In these three verses, we see the actions of men working alongside the sovereignty of God to accomplish the work God had ordained in eternity past. And this is our great comfort today. That God is still in the process of achieving his sovereign purposes in the world through the actions of faithful men and women. And there is nothing who will ever, nothing, no one, no decision that will ever alter that will being accomplished. The great assurance the apostles had and we still have today is that acting with firm belief in the sovereignty of God means that we cannot screw this thing up. Now, we can choose and make poor choices that lead to moments of pain and suffering. Moments that lead to questions about if we really did make the right choice. But you have never and you will never make a choice about your life that would ultimately thwart the sovereign plans of God, both for the history of all things and for your life. The beautiful mystery of how God works is that he takes even our screwed up decisions and he's able to redeem them and use them to still accomplish his purposes. But notice, like notice the words of the disciple of the apostles in the prayer in 124 and 25. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and, and apostleship. The apostles, before acting, are sure to acknowledge that they are open to God's choice from these two men they have set before him. They do not, however, pray and then sit around waiting for a sign. They move forward through the actions of their own casting of lots 
to determine who God would have replace Judas. Just imagine for a moment if they went about picking a replacement for Judas the way we have gone about in the past determining a potential boyfriend or girlfriend. Good grief, we would still be waiting on the 12th apostle to be picked even today. Because at least one of them, Justice or Matthias, would have been told that God had told the other apostles that they shouldn't be together, that it was not God's will for them to be together. I'm joking, but I want us to see how the beauty of God's sovereignty didn't paralyze the early church. It emboldened them to continue working on God's behalf, knowing that ultimately they could not mess up the perfect plan of God. So there's not a lot of hand-wringing. There is a confession in the prayer of full dependence on God to be faithful to reveal who should take Judas's place. They pray, they acknowledge, and then they do the next thing they know to do. They do the next thing they know they should do, which is cast lots to see who will be chosen by God to replace Judas. Now, this was nothing new to these men of Jewish heritage who knew casting lots to be a way that God revealed his plans in times past. Aaron and the priests carried the Urim and the Thummim in their, and that's probably not the right way to pronounce this, but anyway, in their ephod to assist in decision-making. Jonah was found to be the cause of the storm when lots were cast on the ship in the middle of the sea. And lastly, the apostles would have known all of the Proverbs, and Proverbs 16.33 is especially pertinent here. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They took what they knew about how God had chosen to reveal himself in times past. They prayed, entrusting themselves that God would be the one who would faithfully reveal who should replace Judas. Then they acted with what they had at their disposal to see who they should pick. Notice the chain of events. At no point do we see paralysis by analysis. They do exactly the next thing that would be the most common logical thing to do if you knew who God was, if you knew his promises, if you trusted in his sovereignty, and if you were determined to see his plan accomplished in the world around you. They just model what faithful, persevering faith looks like. Know the promises. Pray in trusting that God has the ability to reveal and to use our decisions to accomplish his will in the world. Then do the next thing you know. Don't sit around waiting for, well, God, if it's your will or if this is really what you want me to do, make all the lights green on College Road going home. That's not what we do. That's not how we begin to understand what it looks like to follow God in the world today. The apostles model approaching the disciples model what decision making in light of God's sovereignty should look like. They took what they knew to be true of God from Scripture, that a replacement for Judas had been prophesied in Psalm 109, and that God used lots to reveal his will. Then they prayed, acknowledging their full dependence on him to reveal whom he had chosen, and then they acted. What we see in Acts 1, 12 through 26 is this. God is sovereign, But even God does not allow his sovereignty to override our responsibility to be faithful to do what we know is the next thing to do as we seek to love and to follow him in our life. 
The will of God is not some cosmic mystery that we've got to spend so much of our life figuring out. The sovereignty of God is not something that paralyzes us from going, oh gosh, if I do this thing now, maybe God's ultimate plan of the salvation of all those who love and trust and believe in him is going to be overturned because me, little old me here in Wilmington, North Carolina, didn't pick the right job. Or I went the wrong way on the road. We paralyze ourselves with this idea that somehow we alone have the ability to make a decision that would overthrow God's sovereignty. But the disciples model for us in the upper room as they're waiting for the Spirit to be poured out, what it looks like to live in a bold, confident faith that is rooted in God's promises and in God's sovereignty. And if we're going to be a church that accomplishes what God has for us to do as a church body, if we're going to be a church who meets the needs of the city around us, if we're going to be a church who continues to see new life be born in people through the work of God, through the, our witness and our sharing of it, if we're going to do those things, we've got to be a church who follows the lead of the early church. Know God's promises. Pray God's promises. Be in community with others who would help you remember and believe those promises even when you don't know that you can. And then do something. And we're really good at the first three. But then we get all kinds of cold feet about doing something. I want you to see and understand this morning that even in the presence of fear, even in the presence of uncertainty, God is honored character of Christ is formed in us and in his own unique way through our feeble actions and efforts God accomplishes his purpose through the actions of his people who live and act in accordance with his promises and a trust in his sovereignty that's what God's calling us into today so let's not overthink or over spiritualize what's before us. I want to return to Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something, as we begin to close our time together this morning. DeYoung writes, but when it comes to most of our daily decisions, and even a lot of life's big decisions, God expects and encourages us to make choices. Listen to this next part. Confidence. And I believe this is what we see in the, in the apostles and disciples in the upper room. God has expected and encouraged them to make a choice, and they do so, DeYoung is writing, confident that he's already determined how to fit our choices into his sovereign will. God is not bound by time, as if he's got to make a quick on-the-fly adjustment because you made a decision that he wasn't prepared for. God is not doing this thing by the seat of his pants. God is not the eternal procrastinator waiting for the last moment, for the last decision to be made before he confidently finishes everything he set out to do. Sitting outside of time and space, God already knows the decision you're going to make, and he already has determined how he will fold even the most foolish of our decisions into the ever-developing plan of his sovereign work in the world. And sometimes he even uses our foolish decisions to highlight the grace and the beauty and the love of our Savior. But he also uses our good decisions. And he also uses our uncertain decisions. And I just want to tell you this morning that we can breathe a little bit. You're not going to overthrow God's plans. 
He is able to fit our choices into his sovereign will. De Young goes on, passivity is a plague among Christians. It's not just that we don't do anything, it's that we feel spiritual for not doing anything. We imagine that our inactivity is patience and sensitivity to God's leading, and at times it may be, but it's also quite possible we are just lazy. When we hyper-spiritualize our decisions, we can veer off into impulsive and foolish decisions. But more likely as Christians, we, paul, we fall into endless patterns of vacillation, indecision, and regret. No doubt, selfish ambition is a danger for Christians, but so is complacency, listless wondering, and passivity that pawns itself off as spirituality. Perhaps our inactivity is not so much waiting on God as it is an expression of the fear of man, the love of the praise of man, and disbelief in God's providence. I want to highlight again what DeYoung says. It's not just that we don't do anything. It's that we feel spiritual for not doing anything. Go back to the upper room with me one more time. Now, put yourself in the position there with the disciples. And this is just a good exercise for us. Now, assume that every disciple there, every apostle in that room, is going to follow your lead and you're actively working alongside God to accomplish his purposes in the world. How far does the gospel get? Does it get out of the room? Does it get to your neighbors? Get to your coworkers? Family? Friends? The men and women in that room for all of their faults, and we see them clear as day in the scripture, for all of their uncertainty, for all of their fears, at no point when we read of the early church do we read of their main problem being passivity. Impulsivity at times, yeah. But passivity, never. They knew something deep in their hearts and in their bones about the truth of the gospel about the power of God, about the sovereignty of God at work in the world. And far from bringing them to a place of malaise, it brought them to a place of mission. And that's my prayer for us this morning. That we would consider, in light of God's character as revealed in his word, and the perfect outworking of his will, what works are before us, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2.10, at the end of his glorious summation of the gospel, that God has prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. Not coast into them, not wait for them to come to us. It's an active word that Paul uses. Good works for us to walk in. So I'd ask you this morning, what works are before you that you need to act on with full trust and confidence in God's sovereignty and power? Maybe a church who is freed from passivity, energized by prayer, freed from malaise, fully living on mission. Not content to sit on the sidelines, but fully committed to being in because we trust in God's sovereignty. 
Let's be a church marked by those things. Let's pray.